Wow, I really hesitate to even want to make a podcast right now. It's Monday morning. It's just a few days after the most recent tragedy in Florida. The killing of these 17 people by yet another armed and dangerous, in this case, teenager. I remember five years ago when I was a pastor, I um, I remember the week of Sandy Hook and I could just uh, feel sort of in the depths of my being that we have to turn toward this. And I remember standing up on a Sunday morning just a couple of days later uh, with the sort of terrible job of holding space for grief and anger and outrage and confusion and fear and worry and hopelessness. That's what the air felt like. And I have no idea what I said. I, I, I tried to just speak from the heart, I imagine. And I, I abandoned, I think, whatever I was planning on saying then. I remember someone on staff sort of challenged me a bit. Uh, and, but I think before and after that particular Sunday saying, I don't know if we really need to, you know, look, turn our attention toward tragedy like this every time it happens. We'll never get anything done. It might be more important just to stay the course and sort of remind people through the rhythm of gathering maybe offer a few prayers but I don't know if we need a whole sermon about this and like with all things uh, part of me I mean I, I don't think I took, took it that well in the moment I imagine there's some truth to this sort of reaction or response on the other hand I, I simply couldn't do it and that even sort of strikes me now as one of the problems with institutions, period. Institutions have the thing that institutions do, and they have to stay the course, and they have to offer their rites and rituals and, um, you know, if it's a church, the Eucharist and the prayers, and but any institution, that they have to offer the thing that they claim to be offering and otherwise they'll just be tossed you know to the winds of culture and change and but that's one of the things that makes it feel so rigid because you don't get the sense that it knows what to say or what to do in these tragic times and I'm maybe picking on religious institutions but any institution, what is Congress going to say? I mean, that's one of the things that makes thoughts and prayers seem so hollow. Like, what the hell are you talking about? 
offer us actions, arguments, even if you if you are on the right or the left, offer us solutions, offer us a vision for a healthy, safe, vibrant, and life-giving society. Don't offer us your thoughts and prayers, but they're locked inside the institution. They, they don't seem to be able to do anything. Oh, so it's um, really hard to turn our attention toward stuff like this. And part of the reason is the world we live in is so complex. And we know that. The average person knows that. We know it cannot be reduced down to simple opinions on matters of policy. You're either pro-gun or anti-gun. Or that it's somehow a choice between mental health and gun rights. We live in a world where it's all of the above. It's our education system. It's our mental health system. It's our um, our health care or the lack thereof. It's our uh, archaic laws and the way we relate to them that don't seem to be able to keep up with technology and how quickly culture changes. It's a failure of imagination. It's um, uh, social media and the hollowness and the emptiness that our everybody feels, but particularly our young people. I mean, and right now in your own head, you could say that only scratches the surface of the issues. Yeah. Exactly. It only scratches the surface. And uh, and part of me just wants to run away and hide in a hole and say, I don't want to look. And hopefully this will never happen in my neighborhood. But that's not vision. That's not leadership. That's not being an adult. That's not being a generative presence in the world. That's not living from one's best self and certainly not from what all visionaries, leaders, and spiritual teachers seem to be pointing toward that a meaningful life is a life of service, not self-service. Yeah, and how do we how do we move toward how do we reorient sort of our own hearts, not to mention the heart or soul of our, our culture? And it's definitely not going to be by getting everyone to come over and, to my opinion, of various policies. That's that's getting us nowhere. Um, and so uh, I've been thinking a bit about even um, maybe it's a kind of split that happens in us where we separate ourselves off from reality. Uh, using coping mechanisms and our subcultures and our Facebook groups and even our religion, our church, our tribe. We want to close off and go into that kind of self-protection thing. But I was thinking about the irony of that. 
And the irony of uh, five years ago um, being a, in a church setting that was, I mean, this is just from one person, but I think he probably did reflect the opinion of, of at least a number of people that we can't possibly turn our attention toward this stuff all the time. We'll, we'll never get anywhere. I don't know where it is that we thought we were going, but, um, but here's the irony that Christianity in its most mystical, I think profound and beautiful and courageous, uh, gift to the world promotes and believes in what they call the incarnation, which is the enfleshment of God. And even if you're not a Christian or you're not sure how literal that is, and I'm not even interested in that right now, whether or not Jesus was literally, you know, God or was, you know, Mary and impregnated by God or something like that. Those are sort of modern arguments, modern scientific um, sort of modern scientific critical mind superimposing itself on this ancient mystery. And that has a place, I suppose, but I just don't want to get hung up there. Let's just take it as the mystery that it communicates that something of the divine is not out there. Something of the divine is in human flesh. And even more than that, I know some Christians, particularly Protestants, say, yeah, and, and it was that was just special with, with Jesus. But that's not Orthodox theology. If you move, I mean, it's in the Catholic world, too, if you know where to look. But Eastern Orthodoxy not only believes in the Incarnation, but they believe, in a sense, in the Incarnation of all people. The divinization of all people. That's, a, that's actually what it's called in uh, Eastern Orthodox theology. Meaning all of us are incarnated God. Whatever we mean by God, the mystery that is beyond all names and all forms and all notions of language or beings or, or even the universe, whatever the whole is or the one, something of that lives in human beings and is born into the world exactly as it's supposed to be. Something of the divine that never existed before exists in your kid and in your sibling and even in your parent that you may hate and certainly in your spouse uh, or partner or whatever. And by the way, that's just to scratch the surface of the incarnation. The same exists with every flower and plant and tree and speck of uh, sand. That is a mystical and sacred vision of the universe. And I don't, I'm not asking anyone to believe uh, in God even, um, or certainly believe in a being, an old man in the sky. But I wonder if something of this, the mystery of the incarnation, we don't believe anymore. Even the so-called Christian nation, we believe that only certain people kind of are on God's side. We, we have an inability to see the divine face in the stranger. 
in the orphan, in the widow, in the alien, in the immigrant, in the suffering and hurting teenager who's lost in the world of social media that we gave them but, but don't want to take responsibility for, in uh, who is going to school afraid, who lives uh, in a country where leaders don't know what leadership is and don't understand that it takes courage to do the right thing and the difficult thing. Even if it's a small thing, it makes a huge difference. I think if we're to believe the statistics, the vast majority of Americans on the right and the left support reasonable restrictions on guns. And we still can't get it done because of the money. And uh, like all things, you follow the money and you follow the greed and you follow the kind of very privatized, nobody can tell me pre-conventional kind of thinking. Nobody can tell me what to do, um, which is the lowest level that human beings operate on. And sometimes I do it too, but um, that's not a vision of service. I keep thinking about Roosevelt. I, I, I keep bringing him up. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Yeah, that's taking some responsibility. What can I do? Where am I? How can I make a difference? That's a generative worldview. That's an expansive worldview. That's, that's a worldview that contains uh, others and maybe even future generations. What, are you, what would you say to your grandkids? How would you explain this time period or your great-grandkids? Yeah, we, we didn't really want to take action. We didn't want to do the hard work. Um, we didn't want to change laws around the climate. We didn't want to restrict people's right to do whatever they think they want to do because we were kind of afraid to do so. Um, how are you going to explain that? You can't. The only thing that you would want to say is something like Roosevelt. I tried to do what I could with what I had, where I was at. And I don't know. I guess that's, and I, I you know, I, I sound like I'm preaching. I guess I am. I'm, I'm preaching to myself because if you, if you've heard me say it before and if not on this podcast, but probably on my other podcast at C3 where I teach on Sundays, Occasionally, um, I got this from Ken Wilber, but we live in an age of narcissism and nihilism. And we swing back and forth. And both of those, what both of those have in common is that they're both, they lack intimacy and connection. The narcissist doesn't know how to open to the other. It's a very closed universe, a closed system. If you're not serving, praising, the narcissist, then you're out, you're the opposite, you're the enemy, and you're the problem. That's a very self-serving worldview, and and Trump seems to embody that, and I think people on the right and the left would agree with that. Yeah, he's a bit of a narcissist, and that's very scary when you have a lot of power, because it's very hard to break out of uh, this kind of self-serving a narcissist feels it necessary to talk about themselves and praise themselves and make themselves number one and everybody else um, second tier. But Trump is just a giant mirror. He mirrors back to us our own narcissism. Nobody can tell me what to do. 
I can have however many guns I want to have, and I can have um, hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition. You can't tell me what to do because I have rights. So personal rights, Trump, <laughs> no pun intended, um, other rights, other rights of other human beings or or perhaps even children and their right to just have a life. We don't want any restrictions. That's a narcissist. And, 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 and even if, you know, I don't know Trump. I've never met him. He appears in my dreams from time to time, but I've never met him. And I always remember no matter what, human, a human being is a mystery no matter what. And I'm sure he has his moments where he's less narcissistic. He's a grandpa too. I'm sure, uh, you know, there are moments when his grandkid crawls on his lap and he's just an old man. I wish more of that would come out to play. Um, but maybe that's got to be shut down um, so that this persona can continue to strut around. I don't know. But let's take it seriously as a giant mirror for our own narcissism. And we have to ask ourselves, do we want to live like this? And do we want to teach our kids that this is what it means to be an American, that you have personal privacy, personal rights to do whatever the hell you want to do. And you're not subject to anybody. Is that what kind of world? And we can bend the truth if, as long as it serves us well. Um, we can lie and cheat and pay people off and manipulate the system as long as it serves our interest and the interest of my family and maybe my small tribe. Is that the kind of world we want to hand to our grandkids and our great-grandkids? Um, that's the world we're going to be handing them if we don't take a hard look in the mirror. The other is nihilism, and which I'm guilty of too. You know, I, It's hard to say nihilism without thinking of the big Lebowski there, nihilist Donnie, but this kind of sort of low-level meaninglessness. Everything is meaningless. What the hell can any of us do about this? And that's that rises up within me, even in the face of this unspeakable tragedy. I, I, I read a statistic where... Um, 12 billion uh, bullets are sold in the United States every year. Every year. More bullets are sold in the United States than people that live on this planet. Now, why, how is that a good idea? How is that a good idea? And the way capitalism works, who's going to shut that system down? Because those 12 billion bullets translate into millions and billions of dollars that can be used to keep the system propped up. And even if we restrict bullets, which they do in countries like Israel, which allows gun ownership, by the way, um, and but they restrict the number of bullets that you can have per person, um, w those major manufacturers can find ways to um, sell them to other countries or the black market or whatever. I don't know. My main point is that 
the economic engine behind the policies and ideologies and even the cute sayings uh, from my cold dead hand, you know, there's so much power just because of the money itself. Is that the kind of world we want to hand our kids? And back to nihilism, I hear 12 billion bullets and I think there's no point. Might as well arm yourself and hope for the best. Is that the kind of world we want to hand our kids? That's, and if that's it, that's a lack of courage. That's a lack of leadership. That's a lack of spiritual resolve. And back to spirituality in general, that's a lack of incarnation. That's a lack of turning our attention toward the divine in all things. So one of the reasons why I think we have to look at this, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're coming up out of that, whether you've left that, whether you were never that, it doesn't matter. I'm, I, the, the very notion that the mystery of the incarnation points to, I think, something very important, which is we cannot divide the world up between the so-called sacred and the so-called secular between the things of the spiritual realm and everyday things. The everyday is what needs attention. Because in the everyday, that's where more of the divine comes forth. So a political issue, a gun issue, is a spiritual issue, in my view. It's a spiritual issue. And... What does that then mean? That means we bring our full conscious, as best we can, selves to the question. What can we do? Why should we do it? Is there some imaginative way we haven't thought of yet? Is there a way to honor people's fears that their sort of weapons are going to be taken away? Is there a way to reframe that question and that conversation? Because, you know, I grew up in the South. I grew up uh, with pickup trucks and gun racks and um, and farmers and, and hunting. And I mean, it's kind of like, it's a little bit of a, to call that the hunting gun culture, hunting culture, I don't think is really the case. There are plenty of hunters, but many gun owners aren't hunting. They just might like shooting. I don't know. Maybe they grew up that way, but to demonize, uh, an entire, uh, group or certain areas of the country, um, Meanwhile, those certain areas of the country are demonizing every other place certainly isn't moving the conversation forward. But I believe that um, a bit of the divine rests in every human being. And that's a vision. I can't prove that to you, but that's a sacred vision of the universe. And I, I trust that when you sit down with anyone. I don't know if you saw this thing on 60 Minutes with Oprah. This actually took place in Grand Rapids where they brought a group of people, this is a number of months ago together, and they sort of argued it out, and then they brought them back together again, right and the left, and they had become uh, friends over time. And what struck me is that once there was a human face to the liberal, once there was a human face to the conservative, to the traditional, you could see it. You could see it uh, in their demeanor, and in their language that, that, all right, I'm dealing with another human being. There was a little more grace, a little more compassion, a little more understanding, even if uh, the two sides hadn't changed their mind all that much on issues of policy. I mean, one guy was like, I hate liberals. And then he kind of threw out, he's like, not you, <laughs> 
which which he is, is almost like in the moment he's like yeah i i hate liberals but but do i hate all human beings that are liberal and then all of a sudden we have a much more human view uh, rising up which i trust sits in the soul of every human being even the disturbed human beings um, something of something good and sacred and life-giving and generous is down there and that's not to cover up the fact that all of us have a limbic brain all of us have within us fight flight or freeze it's in there but it's not the only thing that's in there and what do we want our culture to be promoting um what do we want our culture to what kind of world do we want to hand our kids what and actually a better way of even saying that is what world are we handing our kids so what am i saying i'm saying do what you can with what you have where you are this is a season of leadership of strength i was listening to margaret wheatley she has this uh, unbelievable phrase at least in my mind she says we need warriors for the human spirit we need warriors for the human spirit the human spirit the human soul the human heart is under siege by corporations and advertisements and and cheap politics and ideologies that praise wealth and success and fame above all else that is laying siege to the human spirit to our creative capacities to um, to our own gifts that are meant to be brought forth in the world uh, we need people you and I who are going to say all right I'm a warrior for the human spirit I'm gonna do what I can with what I have uh, where I am in the place that I am in the geographical location that I'm in and yeah, and when I say warrior, I know that turns off a lot of my uh, pro super progressive friends because, oh, we have to eliminate all notions of uh, warrior because that equals violence. Well, the warrior is an archetype, and the healthy warrior is a defender of the sacred. Like, the, like um, um, if you pay attention to the actual language that indigenous people use around um, standing up for water, they call themselves defenders of the sacred they're not defending their right to own land they're defending the sacred and that's what a warrior does he defends the sacred he defends the sacred in every human being and and warriors have to uh, especially warriors in culture uh, um, battle for uh, uh, a kind of culture in which people can thrive in which the most number of people can thrive uh, to, to fight for the rights of innocent kids who are going to school in Florida and are in math class say no they need a defender of the human spirit and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to try to create a world in which they can grow up and thrive and share the gifts of their own soul for the sake of their brothers and sisters and humanity and the earth itself that's a warrior for the human spirit and that's what's called forth and if our congressmen aren't going to do it. They're not, or a few of them are. And our senators and the president 
and the administration and whatever. You swap it out for the next administration. If they're not going to do it, who's going to do it? There's nobody else left except us. And if we won't do it, I mean, maybe the next generation will. That's what's so inspiring about high school kids saying, uh, no, we're, we're going to uh, march. We're going to demand change. Will it make a difference? Of course it will make a difference because politicians are, are, are afraid of PR. And... They seem to have no moral center, so PR matters. Um, and when young people call them names <laughs> and <clears throat> and demand change, uh, something good is stirring. And even when their rage is on full display, how can your heart not be broken? How can you um, retreat to your same ideologies. And let me just say something about human growth and development. All of us grow up physically. That's an obvious statement. <laughs> yes, you're listening to this podcast. You just, if you're just finding this out, um, we're already in serious trouble. But um, our psycho-spiritual growth is a bit harder to map. You might be an elder, but act like an adolescent on the psychological, spiritual, social, cultural level. And that's a, th a theme in a lot of my podcasts and teachings. How, I mean, that's actually one of my most important personal questions. How do we grow up? How do we grow up? What does a healthy spirituality look like? What does a healthy life look like? One that involves wholeness and a contact with soul and contact with spirit and contact with service. And how do you cultivate these things, especially in a world where our religious institutions are failing or collapsing and, and our education system seems to be failing and collapsing and, and the world seems more dangerous. So anyway, um, how do we grow up? And I guess um, what I'm, I want to say in a direct way, if it's true that we grow up psycho-spiritually, then all of us, all of us have to say, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. I have a responsibility to listen to other human beings, to say, what does it like to be you? And to do what the 12-step people call a searching moral inventory. What are my values? Why are they my values? Do they hold up? Do they work? Are they healthy? And are they generous and generative to the most number of people? Maybe it seems impossible to say they're generous and generative to all people. So start with just the people in my sphere, <laughs> in my community, in my church, in my family, in my, um, like I live in West Michigan, you know, to do the hard work and to begin to acknowledge, mm, actually, I don't see all that well. Um, there are limits to the worldview that I have right now, and maybe I have something to learn. I think that kind of ethos, spirit, in old-fashioned word, humility, uh, from the earth is really what it means, that kind of earthiness, I am just made of dust, is needed. That doesn't mean you can't have opinions. It doesn't mean you can't get angry. That doesn't mean you can't fight. Um, but you want to um, be doing um, the fighting, the warriorship from as deep of a place as you can 
and that requires some self-examination. St. Antony in the 4th century, famous desert monk, maybe 3rd century. He really started um, desert monasticism in Egypt. A group of students came out to him and they said, what's the first thing that we should do? And he said, know thyself. Know thyself. Do a searching moral inventory. What are my values? What's my worldview? What are my beliefs? Do I really have these beliefs? What am I afraid of? What do I long for? What are my hang-ups? What are my hurts? Know thyself. Which is, of course, a lifelong task. But when we put people in leadership who do not know themselves, who have never looked in the mirror in any deep and profound way other than to do their hair, then we live, then that creates a much more dangerous, self-centered, nihilistic or narcissistic culture and community. Be a warrior for the human spirit. Be a warrior for the human spirit. Be a warrior for your own searching moral inventory. God, I'm, I'm preaching to myself. And something else that um, I started thinking about this week comes from Heschel. And Abraham Heschel, Jewish rabbi, <laughs> marched with Martin Luther King. There's a lovely picture of him. In his, he's got kind of like Einstein hair and these thick glasses, and and he looks very Jewish. And there he is marching next to Martin Luther King. And if you're in, if you're into Heschel and you've read any of his writings, you know why he's marching. Where did he learn that? He learned that from his own prophetic tradition. The prophets were people who defended the cause of the poor, the alien, the widow, the orphan, the outcast. So what else are you going to do if you claim to be rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition? Then march with those who are suffering. And what do you march for? Justice. What spirit do you march in? You, you, you march in the spirit of nonviolence and peace. And you begin to cast uh, a, a bigger, deeper, more generous uh, vision for life. That's a leader. Anyway, Heschel says, not all are guilty, but all are responsible. Not all are guilty, but all are responsible. I don't like to even hear that. I'd rather find people who are guilty. Let's make the NRA guilty of, you know, causing this tragedy or something. No, one kid pulled the trigger. And he's guilty individually for each life that he took. But all are responsible. So yeah, the NRA bears some responsibility. The gun manufacturers bear some responsibility. Those who mine brass and make gunpowder bear some responsibility. We don't like that. Ooh, we don't like that as a culture. We think, hey, just make whatever we want, but don't don't hold us responsible for what people do with it. And that's the mess we're in, even with the these these magical devices that we put into kids' hands that that 
connect them, so to speak, with their friends and neighbors in the entire world, the smartphone. And then since 2012, the, the number, uh, it's, it's, the numbers are very obvious. There's been an increase in anxiety, depression, and suicide among teenagers that most scholars are saying um, is influenced by the very devices that we put into the kids of, uh, into the hands of kids. But we say, oh, we're not responsible. We can't hold Apple responsible. We can't hold, there's no responsibility there. No, that's why Heschel says everybody is responsible. Not, we're going to go on a responsibility witch hunt. Who's responsible? Everybody. The school systems, the Congress people, the President of the United States, you and me are responsible for the culture that we are living in, inhabiting, and promoting either through our action or inaction. That's the talk about being a warrior for the human spirit. What does a warrior for the human spirit does? The warrior says, I'm going to take responsibility for my own life and I'm going to elevate the conversation by encouraging everyone else to take responsibility too. We must take responsibility for the world that we are living in and creating for our kids and our grandkids. And that's only to scratch the human dimension. What about the earth itself and the land and our waterways and, and the air that we breathe? All are responsible. That's what leadership looks like. God, I wish, um, I hope these young people who are fired up right now and angry and passionate will lead the way by saying, all right, you won't do it and refuse to do it. We are going to take responsibility for the country that you gave us, and we're going to make some changes. Wouldn't that be nice? So what am I saying? Not all are guilty, but all are responsible. So what's important right now? I think it's important to get as close as we can to the anger, the outrage, the rage, the hurt, the loss, the grief. We must uh, touch upon it. We, I think in a sense, I mean, I found myself this week almost forcing myself to read a few of these first-person accounts. Why? Because I wanted to take responsibility for the fact that I live in this America. And as easy as it is to shut that off, and, and believe me, sometimes you need a break, I understand that, and watch cat videos or something, we cannot put our heads in the sand and say, I just don't want to look, or it's just too hard, and I hope it will all go away, because, damn it, it's not going away. It's only getting worse. So let's get as close as we can, in a sense, to the pain. Trusting in the old, ancient, mythic notion that pain itself can be transformed. That hurt and loss and fear and even greed and arrogance and small-mindedness can be transformed, can pass through the fires can be burned to the ground and um, 
and in the ashes of our own culture and society and and small-mindedness in the ashes of that uh, something generous and and life-giving and rewarding uh, can begin to come up through the cracks that's my hope that's my prayer so I guess I'll, I'll leave you again with Roosevelt do what you can with what you have where you are